Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with the CEO of Key Nutrition, Brad Jensen, aka the Sober Bodybuilder. Thanks for coming on the show, Brad. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you, man. And I'd like to talk about your business and, of course, a, a little bit of fitness and nutrition. But first, I'd really like to start off by hearing a little bit about your story. So what was going on before you got sober and how did you actually find your way into recovery? Yeah, man. Um, you know, it, it started, I think a lot of us they do and not, not everyone. I shouldn't say that. I've actually met more people recently that didn't start at a young age. I was like, damn, you took your first drink at 30 or something, you know, but yeah. it was yeah. like 12, 13. Right. And, uh, you know, we got into the liquor cabinet and I, you know, I remember at that time I was a chubby kind of overweight kid and, um, that was, that was hard. You know, I look back and, and I pictured me as just the fattest kid ever. I look back at pictures and I was like, Oh dude, like I hung out with kids that were bean poles. So I thought they were shredded. Right. Yeah. Um, they were just skinny, but you know, I say that because it, I felt really restless, kind of irritable and discontent from a young age in my own skin. And uh, I remember when I first took that drink of alcohol, 12, 13 years old, I remember how bad it tasted. And then I remember like 20 minutes later, I was like, this is the shit. I love this. This is amazing. And, um, you know, and that kind of continued. And so it, um, you know, it progressed and, and I actually got into really into health and fitness at a young age, about 15 years old. Okay. Um, didn't know what I was doing, but read all the books I could. And, and during that time, I actually found out that drinking, um, was really not good for building muscle. So I quit drinking altogether. But uh, I certainly did not like being sober. I just wanted to build biceps more than I wanted to get drunk at that time. Um, so 16, 17, probably 17 years old, anyways, took my first, uh, had my first experience with opiates and um, and I was hooked. Um, I loved them. I remember that feeling hit me and uh, that's what I wanted the rest of my life because I could also go work out efficiently the next morning without a hangover. So I was like, this is amazing. So it was, it was just like a weekend thing, but, you know, it got really bad. I mean, you, you, get, you know, your listeners know the story it gets worse, never better for, for people like us. And it quickly, it just progressed, you know, and it was a lot of fun. And I, and, and I think I, I, I need to say, cause it was a lot of fun in the beginning. If it wasn't, I wouldn't have kept doing it. It wasn't like it was hell right away. For sure. Yeah. A lot of fun. We were partying and, and, um, and, and it just, before I knew it, because that's how it goes, especially when you look at opiates and, you know, I identify as just a garden variety alcoholic, you put it, you know, any substance I would, take but it quickly progressed um as it always does to heroin and um and you know when that happened it got really you know it, it just there's once you kind of switch over to that there's no more you can kind of rationalize that like you know you got this pretty pink pill that you're crushing up and you know you're like cooking up heroin in a spoon and shooting it up yeah it just yeah. quickly got bad. Like I, I couldn't kind of, you know, I couldn't justify anymore. And, you know, I was going down to Tijuana, Mexico from Salt Lake City, Utah as a senior in high school and going to the pharmacies and loading up my door panel full of all kinds of drugs um, and coming back and, you know, driving through, not even knowing how many felonies I was committing at the time. They just kind of idiot savant. I was a kid. Somebody told me about it. I did it at work. So I went down there four more times and I was selling to all the high schools and I was the man, like I had arrived, you know, and then someone got popped down there and they went to a Mexican prison for four months. And I remember thinking I'm way too pretty to go to fucking Mexican prison. I'm not, I'm not doing that. So I quit going. Uh, my buddy got popped down there and they, they kept him. Wow. And so I was like, okay, I can't do that anymore. And that's when it ran dry. And like, mm. 
I no longer was the man, like I needed this fix. And yeah, so, yeah. um, you know, started heroin about 18, 19 years old. And, um, you know, it, it just wasn't that, that never ends well, like started doing heroin and then I, you know, got the job of my dreams and the girl, like, it just doesn't go like that. No, typically not. Typically not. Yeah, man. A, a lot of parallels in our story. I, I was definitely the, the chubby kid, totally insecure, but I had never thought of it. Like you said, all the kids I was hanging around, it's not like I was just huge or anything, but all the kids I was hanging around were these little string beans, you know? And, uh, but yeah, I, I remember that moment that you just described where it was like, okay, I went from being, you know, the, the drug dealer to the dope fiend, like real quick. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and thankfully I didn't turn to heroin. I guess I just, my addict mind, I just really liked what I liked and, and kind of stuck with the pills, but I'm guessing you did that just because it was more, more readily available. Yeah. Yeah. They had started to, uh, you know, I mean, pills were still really, really, you know, I mean, this is what, 2002, 2000, no, 2003, 2004. Mm -hmm. And I look back and I mean, man, you look at what's just happened with Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the, the I mean, just, they were still readily available everywhere, mm -hmm. but it was starting to get a little bit more, like people were starting to see some of the damage. This is 2005, probably by this point. Okay. Um, and so I just remember they were getting a little bit harder to get. And so I, um, yeah, it just became, that's what was easy, you know? And I remember the first time I was sick, I was withdrawing and, um, cause I, I, I just stopped selling the drugs and I just lived off of what I had from going down there. And I was terrified to go back down there. Cause that kid was still in a Mexican prison. I was like, Oh, Mexican prison. That's awful. I was weak. I was like, I'm not doing that. And so I used up everything I had. And I remember the day came that I ran out. And I had heard about, I had heard about people on withdrawals. You got to remember, I was selling to high school kids that were doing them on weekends. So I hadn't seen the ugly side of like some kid pulling up to my house, knocking on my window at four in the morning, shaking. Like I hadn't seen that side. You know, the vast majority of people I was selling to, it was a weekend party thing. It wasn't an addiction yet. And so, you know, kids, high school kids don't have enough money to be addicted to OxyContin yet. So I remember the day that they came and I, and I did my last one and I thought, this is going to be it. I'm done. Got to stop doing these, you know, the next day hit and I was so sick and I was like, God damn it. Like, and I knew I would be, cause I'd be been using every day for like nine months and, uh, but I'd never ran out because I had the supply and, um, and it hit me and those withdrawals were real. And I remember thinking, well, maybe I just actually have the flu too. Like, I just didn't want to believe that I had gotten addicted that hard. And um, I was gnarly sick. And I remember, like it was yesterday, this guy, who was an older guy that I thought was so cool. I mean, it turns out he was a fucking loser. But, um, and he said, hey, man, I got some heroin. It'll make you feel better. And I remember that was a line in the sand that I'd drawn. I was like, nah, that's great. You know, I come from a, I came from a middle to upper class family in a, in a suburb in Salt Lake City, Utah, you know, um, good religious family. Like it just was a line in the sand. I was like, no, that's like, that's that next level. I can't do that. And I said, no. And about 20 minutes later, I just was like sweating and shaking and vomiting. And I was like, dude, let me see it. So I shot up heroin for the very first time. Um, and I instantly felt better just like I would from, from an Oxycontin. And then I asked him, how much do those cost? And he said, 10 bucks. And I said, 10 bucks for that. I was paying like 80. And so it was like a no brainer, right? It just like, it was just, supply and demand and cost and demand. And so uh, that's how I got into heroin and uh, shot it up my very first time. Didn't even go the smoking route because that's what this guy had. He loaded it up for me. And I was like, I guess this is what you do. And, um, and so it started from there and um, ended up in uh, my first treatment center about four months after that, because it got gnarly bad quick. And, um, you know, I never forget when I called my mother and told her, so I, I wasn't living at home. They knew I partied. They knew I partied. They didn't know the extent about what I was doing, okay. but they knew yeah. I partied. They knew I, they knew I was doing some drugs, but you know, I, I looked like I was keeping it together. That last four months, I kind of like stayed away from them. And I called my mother and told her, I said, Hey, I need some help. She says, what's going on? I said, um, I think I need to rehab. I, I've been doing heroin. And I remember it, bam, like silence. I was like, hello. She dropped the phone. She was in shock. Wow. 
So they sent me to a rehab, a beautiful posh rehab. And I was like, sweet, went to this nice place, you know, with a river in the back yeah. and a creek. And I was like, this is it. Yeah, vacation. So I got in there and um, I was in there. I was a 20-year-old kid. And I heard people identifying themselves as alcoholic. And I was like, oh, that really sucks for you. Um, I'm just so a heroin. How old were you? 20. You were 20. Okay. I was very, very distinct on making sure I let people know that I was my name is Brad. I'm a heroin addict. Like that was my problem is what I told myself. And I mean, the counselors at the rehab, the, like they kept telling me that wasn't the case, but that is the story I told myself. And that's what I ran with. I don't have a, I'm not a drug addict. I was a heroin addict and heroin's addictive, but I'm certainly not an alcoholic. First off, I'm too young. Secondly, I don't even really drink. How can I be an alcoholic? But would not consider that I possibly could actually just have this thing called alcoholism. So I, um, I got out of that treatment center with my new girlfriend that I met in there. Um, oh, it was a great match. Yeah. <laughs> I loved her, you know, that, that's always, yeah, that's always a good, uh, good way to leave, leave treatment. The best part was about that it was a 60 day treatment center on day 59. We decided to sneak out the window together. So I didn't even coin out, wow. um, Keep in mind, this is like you could just walk out the front door, but we snuck out the we like were two bandits in the night mm -hmm. and we're like, what should we do? And we're like, well, let's get drunk. First night out, yeah, get drunk. Nothing bad happens. I'm like, oh, see, prove those guys wrong. Got drunk again. Nothing bad happened. Third time I get drunk, I black out. Never blacked out. It's like, that was weird. So I get drunk again. Then I bump into somebody with some cocaine. And then it was just like, this was the story that happened. I do some coke. Then I get off on that. And then I need something to come down from it. And it was just this constant game. And what's crazy was like, I look back and I'm like, well, the evidence was pretty clear right in front of you, right there. that you can't drink like a normal person either. But I wouldn't, I would not concede that to myself. So, you know, I got caught up in the system at that time, went to, um, I ended up having 17 bookings in the county jail. I spent a total of about two years in there, you know, six months here, eight months here, two months here, 30 days here. Um, couple, I think three or four more treatment centers in that time. And every time I just wouldn't admit, like I couldn't admit to myself that I couldn't safely put anything in my body, you know? So I'd get out and I'd be like, okay, I'll stay away from drinking, but, uh, you know, club drugs like GHB have never been a problem for me. So I start doing GHB and that, that, that took me down a dark path and right back to heroin. It was always the same story. And I think that's the insanity of addiction is it's like the evidence is so abundantly fucking clear in front of your face, but I like a decade of this and, and through that decade, you know, the seed was planted when I went to recovery meetings, you know, and, and um, I, I don't know if this is like 12 step based, but I got, I got sober in 12 step rooms. And, and again, however someone's get sober, I don't really give a shit. That's how I got sober. And I remember the seed being planted in there. And it was like, every time I'd go, to rehab, I'd get up these, these hopes again, but it was never just like for nothing. I, I feel like the seed was planted a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And, um, and finally that last year got really bad of my using. And, um, you know, for a good portion of that, I'm kind of leaving out some of the details. Like I actually could somewhat manage my life. There was periods there where even when I was doing heroin and I was managing a gold's gym, that only lasted for about six months before I would like do a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the afternoon. And I certainly didn't look like a drug addict. Mm. I was still working out. I still ate right. It was the most bizarre kind of paradoxical world I was living in. Yeah. I, but I, because I, it doesn't click for me at all. <laughs> what? Looking back, I don't know how it clicked for me either, but it was such a, it was such a disguise because I didn't look like a drug addict. I had track marks, but I didn't look like a drug addict. Uh, so, I mean, you kind of get away with telling myself, and maybe I'm not as bad. Like I don't look like a junkie. Right. So at the very end there though, the last treatment center I went to, they made my family come and my family got involved in a program called Al-Anon, obviously a sister program to Alcoholics Anonymous. And through that, the biggest thing they took away was that they were going to damn near love me to death. They were going to love me into the grave. They were enabling me. I would, I'd hit almost a rock bottom and they'd put the pillow under and they were just trying the best they could. 
But when they found Alan on it, it fucked up my using because they stopped <laughs> enabling me and they put him boundaries. I was so resentful at Alan on for the longest time. Yeah. But it's, it's what ended up saving my life because that last year they finally cut me off and I just done eight months in jail and I got out and all of our hopes were renewed. I'm going to do it this time, but I hadn't actually done any work. And there's a big difference between being sober and being in recovery. So I was sober for eight months, which was the longest I'd been sober in a decade, but I was sitting in a jail cell okay. and I was still doing the okay. same shitty behaviors in there. I was bartering pills. I was, you know, gambling. I was doing all these things, you know, and I thought really like, I was like, okay, I finally changed. Like I got this. I got out and uh, the insanity returned. And it was like three days out of jail. My parents were all excited. They're like, oh my gosh, we finally got you back. And and that, that craving came and that phenomenon of craving kicked in and it was so intense. And I remember I started shaking and you get that stomach ache where you feel like you're gonna shit your pants. Cause you're like, don't. I, mean, I took a deep breath and I said, I'm gonna call my dealer. There's no way a crackhead still has the same number eight months later. I was like, there's no way he picks up. And I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> says he's got stuff, come meet him. And I remember the whole time I was driving down there. And this is what I mean by those seeds were planted in all those treatment centers is I started crying on the way down. I was crying and I had a stick shift at the time. So I was trying to change my gears. And that's how I remember I was crying pretty hard because I had to keep wiping my eyes. I was, because I couldn't tell myself that this was going to be different. I could not convince myself that just this time was going to be different. I, I did what they told me in treatment. I played the tape all the way through and I'm like, you're going to start. Hopefully you don't die because that's how people overdose. You're not going to stop this. You're not going to stop till something stops you. This is going to get bad. And I still went anyways. I did everything, but I didn't have any recovery to back me up. I didn't have a spiritual connection. I didn't have any tools. I'd sat in jail with a bunch of convicts talking about dope for eight months. That is not recovery. That was being dry. And um, I went and used anyway. And um, my parents fell through with that, followed through with their commitment, which was if you use again, we, we have to let you go. Like you can't, we can't have you doing this to our lives anymore. And um, they cut me off and they said, you're not allowed to come back here. And so for that whole last year of 2012, I was homeless and I was very resourceful. I never slept on the streets, but it, it was, um, it was full of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. My, my pattern was I would go about three months, four months, maybe five on these binges. And then something would intervene. My parents would send me to detox they'd send me to rehab. The cops were always a good intervention. I had terminated my probation finally. So I had nothing hanging over my head. My parents were done. And I didn't draw a single sober breath from January, the end of January of 2012 till my sobriety date of November 20th, 2012. And that was a long stretch for me. That was almost 11 months straight every day. And during that time too, I decided to, uh, there's a very methodical decision to start doing math. That, that is not a joke. I was like, I can't get the energy up to go hustle to get more money because I'm so doped out mm -hmm. and cocaine is too expensive. So I'm going to start doing some math. Like it was a thought out decision, which is so fucking crazy. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, a 20 sack of meth will give me tons of energy. It's only 20 extra bucks a day. And it will give me energy to go out there and hustle to get the money I want to get my opiates. That does not, that did not work out good. I ended up going clinically insane a few times. I lost my mind, um, was hanging out with some of the shadiest people that I could imagine. It was a very dark, evil world. Something I hadn't really seen. I would use heroin alone. This was very chaotic and full of crimes and full of just ugliness and evil. I could feel the evil. And so that went on all that year. And it was just day after day of Groundhog's Day. Like, when's this going to end? Parents wouldn't talk to me. They cut me off. And um, and I was thinking, okay, you know, I got to, it was getting to the end of the year. It was cold as shit here. I was trying to, like, find places to stay, dope houses, cheap hotels. I was like, this has got to stop. Um, I Like, I don't know what to do. I, I clearly can't do it. I clearly cannot get sober. Um, so I don't know what to do. And, um, and so finally that led up to, sorry, that was a really long thing without me. I'm a podcast host. So I hate when people don't give me a break to talk. So 
No, no, you're um, good, man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just uh, again, a lot of parallels in our story and, and I get it. I mean, it sounds like, but, but you said that seed was planted. So like, what was the, what was the turning point? So the end of that year, um, I've shared this story a lot, but it's the only fucking story I got. The turning point was, you know, the end of that year, my grandfather died. And, um, you know, of course, like there was times during the year I was just going to see him and I never showed up, of course. It was kind of unexpected when he died. Um, my mother called me, let me know he died. And um, she said, the funeral's in five days. She said, you need to come. She says, please just do whatever you got to do to be okay. And she she knew what that meant. She, that meant... Her, her idea was don't be too high and don't be dope sick. And I'm like, Oh, isn't that cute? If I could just find that perfect mix. Right. Yeah. So of course the morning came and I ran out of everything, but I said, you know what? I got to show up for this. I just got to go. And the withdrawal started to kick in the minute she picked me up and, and uh, I started throwing, I threw up in her car. Like I dodged out the, the door when she was, and she was like, I'm sweating. I'm shaking. And she said, you can't go like this. And she's crying. She says, what do we have to do? And I said, you got to go by this guy's house. And so my good little religious mother is driving me to the dope dealer's house, all because she just wanted me to show up for my grandfather's funeral. And I did too, but it was the ultimate act of selfishness. And I remember, you know, we pulled up and I got the drugs and I had to do them in the backseat of her car because at this point we were going to miss the funeral. We were so late because we had to backtrack so much. So I hop in the backseat of her car and, um, proceeded to pull out my spoon and, and heroin and the needle and, and I'm cooking it up while she's driving up the highway and I'm looking at her in the rear view mirror, looking back at me this. So she knew I did heroin. She'd never actually seen me do heroin for sure. Yeah. And she's got tears sure. just rolling down her face and I'm looking and I'm trying not to make eye contact in that rear view mirror because the shame was so big. I remember I did what I had to do and I did it. And it was instantly I felt better, but I couldn't numb the pain of like what I just did to my mother it was the ultimate act of selfishness. She didn't say another word to me. She just cried. And I said, I'm sorry. She wouldn't even say anything. It was just that heartbreak of like, this is what our son is as a junkie. Like she knew I was a junkie, but seeing it was just a whole nother level. And so I remember in that moment, it was very clear. It came to me because I was never truly suicidal out there. I, I talked about suicide when I was dope sick, but I was, I was actually well. And this point, and I said very clearly to myself, you got two options. You need to kill yourself. Like and legitimately do it. Or you need to try one last time to get sober. And it, those were my, like going on another day like that wasn't the option. And quite frankly, the first option of killing myself, I actually kind of played through like, where could I get a gun? It seemed like an easier option because I didn't quite think I could get sober, but those seeds that were planted where, what would happen when I'd go to treatment with these guys. And then over the years, I would keep trying to get sober. So I'd go back to meetings and I'd see these guys with two or three years of sobriety that were worse off than me that like had a life and like had had a kid. And so that seed of like, fuck, if that guy can do it, I really, really think I can like the seed was planted. And so, you know, that, that night I, uh, I, um, I was arrested and, um, arrested in a stolen car that to this day, legitimately never knew was stolen. The guy asked me to drive it. We were going to get drugs and it was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Those lights flipped on and I'm like, why is that guy pulling me over? And he said, this car's stolen, man. And I was like, ah, and it, like, he, he thought he told me, yeah, you should, you should gun it. We're in like a Hyundai Elantra. I'm like, yeah, dude, no, yeah. Pulled over. Those red, the red and blue lights went on. I remember it was the moment of just surrender. Like I just, my heart just calmed down and I just kind of like, it just was so incredibly calm. The cop was like, okay, yeah, you need to go to jail, dude. You car stolen. You don't have a license. I'm like, I know let's go. And, um, you know, and I remember I got there and I was like, this is, this is, this is God intervening in my life. This is where it starts. And so I withdrawed and, um, it was the worst withdrawals of my life. And, said things like, I'm going to kill myself. So they put me in a crazy padded unit and they, um, and I made it through it. And, uh, when I got out, the seed was planted from all those treatments. says I knew where to go. And I called my mom and she said, you can't come here. She said, but I'll drop you off at a recovery meeting. So she dropped me off at, I think it was a CA meeting. And, uh, so instead of calling the dope dealer, I went to a meeting and, and that's where my journey started. Wow. 
Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, gosh, I, I remember like doing my research, the seed being planted, like the exact same thing you said, like seeing all these people that maybe I had, you know, knew they were sober and, and I had kind of been in and out or like flirting with getting sober. And it was like, these guys were progressing. Like clearly I knew it worked in the back of my mind, but I, I just, there were so many years where I just wasn't, wasn't ready, but kind of like you, I remember, I remember knowing where to go when, when I was ready. And, um, and, and so I think, you know, helping to plant those seeds is important too. So where does, uh, just to kind of uh, switch gears here, where does fitness and nutrition kind of fit into to all of this? Like, when did you start to see that that might be a, uh, a career? Yeah, man. So, you know, I actually got certified as a personal trainer when I was still in high school. I realized I was like, dude, I fucking hate school. Like I hated school. I barely passed, not because I was stupid, because my ADD, I just hated school and I was doing drugs. I mean, let's, let's just throw that one out there. Probably not the best, but, um, you know, so I got certified as a personal trainer. And so my first job, um, before the addiction got really bad was a, was a personal trainer at Valley Total Fitness, which I think they've long gone out of business, but, um, I was the youngest personal trainer they'd ever hired. I was straight, straight out of high school. And, um, and so that's where, like, that's what I, I knew. That's what I wanted to do. Like from that early, <clears throat> sorry, dude, that's on my throat. Um, so already I knew that's what I wanted to do. Now I had some, you know, and then I managed the gold's gym. I did these things. I was personal training. So fitness was always kind of, I, I worked a bunch of shitty odd, odd, like odd jobs, like delivering furniture or this or that, because I couldn't stay sober. And so I had to like, just find a job and, um, but I always knew that's what I wanted to do. Like fitness, health and fitness was my passion. Okay. And I knew that. And I knew that that was a blessing. So many people are trying to figure out what their purpose or passion is. I kind of always knew even out there running a gun and like, I was like, man, like, you know, I got this mission to do. And so when I got sober, I started waiting tables um, just because the only job that would take me right away. Cause I needed a job. And, um, and I ran into a guy who I used to work for at a nutrition coaching company and, he was, I was waiting on his table and he was like, why are you waiting tables, dude? You were so talented. And I said, dude, listen, here's the story. I'm 60 days sober, man. I had a bad drug problem. And, um, and the man gave me a chance. He was like, well, let's chat here. Here's my card. Call me. So he gave me a chat. And so real quick, early on in my sobriety, I started back doing what I love to do, which was coaching other people. And, and I'm really grateful for that man. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He, he died as a result of this disease, which I didn't know he was struggling with when he gave me a job, which makes sense now, you know. Um, so, you know, he gave me a chance and that and that's where, you know, I got right back into it. And I remember I, I um, you know, I remember the first time I was working with a client, we were on a call and she started crying because she was so grateful for my help. And I got this feeling come over me and like my body started getting like tingly and I was so happy and I hung up the call and I started crying and I was just so grateful. And I realized I was 29 years old. Looking back, that was the first time in my whole entire life that I had felt grateful, like actually felt grateful. Yeah. And that was the feeling I was chasing in a pill and a bottle and the needle was just that overwhelming feeling of gratitude. And, and that really stuck with me that like, that's what I need to chase. And, and so dude, just right off the get, I was blessed to get back in. And I think it was pivotal in my sobriety. I, I work with guys who are, you know, working at a gas station, they hate their job and they're trying to figure out what they want to do. And I just feel very fortunate that I got back into what I love doing from an early, or early on in my sobriety. And, um, and I knew that I wanted to start my own business one day. Like I knew that. I didn't know shit about business, but I knew that I could hustle. I knew that I could grind. And so about four, it's coming up on exactly four years ago, actually this month, um, I started Key Nutrition. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I want to ask, man. I mean, I, I, I'm just curious personally here. You were in the gym, hitting it hard, eating right, lifting, you know, in addiction, 
how did that, how did, I mean, there had to be some kind of like transformation, like your relationship with working out and nutrition and everything when you got sober, like, where do you feel like fitness and nutrition fit, fit into your sobriety? Like where, what does it mean to your sobriety? I guess. Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, it's, it's, it's a huge aspect of it. And it was, you know, it was a huge aspect early on, but I think the difference is this time. I mean, so I was always, you know, you know, like I said, for those first couple, I mean, the last couple of years of my using, I just turned into a junkie, like no longer was there a gym and my whole life was involved around drugs. But, you know, I, and I, when I would go on really bad benders, I would eventually stop lifting and going to the gym. But the first thing I did when I get sober again was get right back in the gym and this time, the first things I did was get to a meeting. I got me a sponsor. I got a book that started, you gave, you gave me the, a big book of alcoholics Anonymous. I started reading and we went through it. And it was about a week later because I didn't have money. I couldn't even get a gym pass. I was doing pushups at home that I was able to get some money from waiting tables to, to get a little, little gym membership. And so it's become a huge part of, of my overall wellness. And, um, and, and my sobriety, but it definitely, if it ever starts creeping where it starts becoming the number one thing, that's a really bad sign for a guy like me, like first and foremost, my relationship with, with a higher power, you know, like these recovery checkpoints for me have to be online. And then it's the gym. So the gym's a huge part, but for a guy like me who always put that as the forefront, I have to be careful to make sure like I'm not picking going to the gym over a recovery commitment I have because that, that was my pattern in the past. So, you know, for the most part over the last eight and a half years, I've really stuck to that. And times I haven't, I feel it. Like I feel it. I cannot put my fitness over my recovery. It is part of my recovery, but it has to come after I've done all these other things, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, 100%. I, the reason that, see, I was never in the gym pre-sobriety. I had always wanted to get in shape and man, very similar, uh, you know, path to you. I got certified as a trainer, started, you know, started my own business and, and started coaching people and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, I, I remember like having those moments where I was, you know, maybe thinking about going to the gym. I really got in, you know, I, I love it, you know, and it, and it is a big part of my life, but I I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, the sobriety has to be the, the number one thing. I, there's so many sayings, right. That we hear, like, especially in, in 12 step programs, like the thing you put before your sobriety is the first thing you'll lose and so on and so forth. I, I've seen that happen you know, so many times to other people. And, and for me, most of the time, it was like putting money, you know, or, or jobs before uh, my sobriety, you know, and that that never really worked for me very well. So I, I do want to ask, though, because I, I agree with you. I mean, I really feel personally that, um, you know, that, that health and fitness, uh, physical well-being should be, you know, just part of everyone's sobriety, uh, you know, sobriety plan, basically, if you will. So what are some simple things I've got to ask while you're here that you think that that people can do to just kind of start getting, let's just say their nutrition on track, like, you know, new to sobriety, what are some basic things? And I'm not talking fat loss or anything like that, but like, what are some basic things people can start doing? Do you think? Yeah. 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 It's interesting you said that because I actually had a client years ago that I was working with that's, that's in the recovery community. And she said, she said something to me about, she said, you know, I kind of feel like I'm finally balancing on all four legs and I adopted this model and it's what I actually use with a lot of my clients, obviously maybe some differences in it, but where she said, you know, I've got my, my spiritual health, my, my, my emotional health and my mental health, but I was always lagging my physical health. So I, and I see people in, in, in the recovery community where it's like, she didn't know how good she was designed to feel. And when she started physically feeling so much better, her spiritual health, like it's just this four legged chair of fitness and health. And so that's the same model I use with my clients. So it's, it, it, I think it should be a huge part of everyone's yeah. and, and, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. not, and I'm not saying you can't have great long-term sobriety. I just think you're not aware of how much actually better you would feel and how much it would help all the other areas. If you were taking care of your physical health, mm -hmm. but, um, 
you know, just getting sober, man. I think, I think the biggest thing is there's some simple things you can start doing. And even just when not even particularly with your nutrition, but first, like just drinking water is the easiest thing to do. And you start drinking more water, it's going to help curve some of your cravings. It's going to help you feel more full. You're going to have less headaches. Um, you're going to have less water retention, uh, more mental clarity. Like it's so neglected. It's something that people are like, wow, could that really make that big of a difference? Yes. Like drink half your body weight in ounces for a couple of weeks and like report back to me and they always feel better. So like water, something so simple. But the thing about water is the things that are so e easy to do are also so easy not to do. So like, it's so easy to be like, ah, how big of a difference could that make? Um, you know, another thing is just trying to, um, you know, getting like, uh, I guess when it comes to nutrition is, you know, actually, I mean, if you don't want to get into like, you know, tracking your food, it's like, okay, you know, maybe, uh, maybe just pick one, start with breakfast, just like whatever you eat for breakfast, just try to maybe have like a protein shake or maybe have some eggs, like try instead of like French toast or fruity pebbles or something that's going to spike your insulin and leave you like really hungry later and crash on energy. Like maybe just start with making one meal really good out of the day. Breakfast is a time where our cravings aren't super high because we've been fasting. We don't have a lot of ghrelin and leptin going our hunger and uh, hormones. So start with that, make it a really clean breakfast. And people are like, well, I don't know what a clean breakfast is. Yes, you do. You're very clear. It's very clear. Oatmeal is going to be cleaner than egg and waffles. It's not hard to figure that out. Like, or, you know, and just have some protein, things like this. And just being caught, like being aware of like how much you snack and maybe trying to be like, okay, you know, I'm not going to focus on necessarily what I eat, but I'm going to focus on more like times. I'm not just going to snack all day aimlessly. Like I'm going to, you know, I'll try to eat a snack around this time and just even spacing out your meals is a good start. Yeah. Yeah, man. Those are all really good tips. So, uh, the water I, I really like, I mean, the, the way that I think about that, I I'm with you, the water is, you know, with clients that I work with in recovery or not, that's always like the number one thing, because in my mind, it's, I think of it as like an anchor. Like if you can get the water down consistently, like everything else, I don't want to say everything else just magically works around it. But if you can be consistent with that, you can start being consistent with other things. So I'm, I'm with you, the water concentrating on, on cleaning up or fixing up one good meal. I really like that. Um, yeah, I, I think that's, uh, th those are, those are really good tips for sure. Um, so I do want to ask, man, you've, you've also been working on, a project called the next level experience. So tell me a little bit about that. What's that all about? Yeah, dude, super glad you brought that up. Um, so it's a, uh, it's an eight week course. That's, um, that's in a, more of an intense, um, intimate and interactive kind of experience. We only take 12 people in it cause it's a really close knit kind of environment. And we found that that small group, um, allows for people to get very vulnerable and these people get very close in these eight weeks. And we do, you know, so it's really how it, how it, how it was kind of how the idea came to be was I had so many people, clients over the years, thousands of clients later that, you know, and they're dealing with a lot of self-limiting beliefs and they're dealing with, you know, sugar addiction, or they're dealing with just can't stop eating or whatever it is. Right. And, um, you know, and consistency and all these things. And people would say to me, well, I mean, gosh, like how did like your problem is way worse. How did you get and stay sober? And I'm like, well, I, it, I mean, I worked these things called the 12 steps. I don't know. Something happened. I was really consistent. Um, it was like hard for me to articulate and put it into like, okay, how can this actually help other people? So I thought, how can I take some of the principles that the step, the 12 steps have taught me and put them into a program that also has a health and fitness component, like a nutrition and fitness component and and build this program and then I ended up linking up with my friend um alti who does energy work which i thought was super woo woo till she started doing some on me and i was like there's something to this and so we have uh, it's it's each week is focused on a different level and so i just took some of the like you're going to see in there that there's a nightly inventory you're going to start doing now it's kind of a you know it's modeled off of the tw the 10 step inventory but it's totally different because we're looking also at like food habits and nutrition and fitness but 
there's a lot of those principles, you know, morning routines, gratitude terms, um, you know, and there's even an amends process, but the amends process we have these people make during it is much more of a letter of amends to themselves. Because when I looked through the 12 steps, that's one of the most impactful things my first sponsor had me do was write a letter to myself and amends. So it's, um, we each, each week is focus on a different level. So there's, you know, a health and habits component. There's, there's a mental week. There's an emotional week. There's a physical week where we talk about how elements affect our physical body. And there's a physical challenge in there. And there's a, um, and there's a spiritual week. And we talk about kind of the concept of us like separating religion and spirituality. And so having people actually find their own kind of spirituality through things like meditation or breath work and, um, so it's uh, and then there's there's a there's a relational week where we we go through some of the amends process, but more of the amends to themselves, because generally everyday people don't have a million amends to make like we do, like like oh you have like one apology you need to make. I had like a hundred, so that's <laughs> right. awesome. Right. Yeah. So I, yeah. I did a beta round, a practice round, and I tried to kind of go about it like having them make amends to other people, and people are like, I mean, I guess I could probably make amends to like my this like neighbor i was like oh you guys don't have the wreckage right yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so it's uh you know and then there's there's even an abundance week kind of talking about you know financial abundance and bringing these things into our life but it's a really cool thing so this is the second full iteration of it and uh so we open it up about every quarter and so we'll be doing another one but it's uh it's truly like a really cool transformational experience that um really deep dive they're 90 minute zoom calls every week there's a workbook we send out um I'm really pumped about it. And I think this can turn into something really cool and watching people kind of have these breakthroughs and, you know, whether it's the people who are on again, off again, dieters, whether it's people, we have people who are in great shape, but they're just empty. They're like, I have the best body, but I literally feel like that's all I have. And there's some people who are on again, off again, dieters that can't figure out why they can't lose the weight. Um, there's some people that are just not happy. Uh, we attract a lot of the health and fitness crowd because obviously there's a huge health and fitness component the whole entire eight weeks. But um, yeah, that's that's what the next level experience is. I'm super, super excited about it. That's really awesome. And it sounds like it's really pulling together the four legs of that stool that you were talking about, yes. just like going even more in depth with that. And and man, I think that's a great idea because I, like we just discussed, I think that all needs to to be there. And it's you know, I think the way that, that I always or, or that I came to kind of see the, you know, the relationship of health and fitness to recovery is like you said, like, I, for sure, someone can stay sober and like not take great care of their health. But, you know, I think early on in recovery, what I started to see is it's like, you know, we're supposed to get out of our comfort zones, right? Whether someone's in a, a 12 step program or recovery program, whatever, whatever they're doing we're doing things that are not the norm, right? We're out of our comfort zone. We're probably supposed to be meeting new people and all this stuff. Like, how do you do that when you feel like shit is kind of my thing, you know? And, and I'm with you. It's like, imagine how much better you would feel. And, and I think, you know, some of the simple things you talked about, like water, you know, working on just like cleaning up one meal a little bit, um, just kind of looking at what you're eating, being more aware I think those are really simple things that, you know, that can be helpful and can help someone's sobriety. But, but I guess my point is, uh, you know, with this course, I really like how you're tying like the spiritual aspect and, and all these other things together with it. Because I think once you kind of like start to nail all that stuff down, like, man, your life can just get, get so good. Um, so that's, that's really awesome. I think you've talked about it a little bit. You, you mentioned, you know, being in a 12 step program, of course, what does your recovery look like today? And what do you do to continue to uh, maintain and, and grow in your sobriety? No, honestly, the same shit I did when I got sober. Now it looks different, but it's, it's the same shit. When I say it looks different, I was going to a meeting a day for a long time for over a year. Um, you know, I'm still regular in, in recovery meetings. Um, I host a men's meeting here at my office on Tuesday nights and, um, you know, meetings are opening back up here before that. And I hit, hit one other one. So it was, it was two a week now. And, um, I still work. I always have at least one guy that I'm taking through the 12 steps. Um, that keeps me really in the game. When I don't have a guy, I go to more meetings to try to share my story, to try to get another guy. 
And uh, I'm still current with my sponsor, not like weekly, but probably yeah, every month we chat, catch up, see what's going on. But I make my bed every morning, just like I did when, when I got sober, um, every morning without fail. I think that's the only thing I've done damn near perfect in eight and a half years, because it's one thing I could for sure control, mm-hmm. make my bed. I connect spiritually in the morning and my morning routine has changed, you know, you know, in, in, in the big book, it talks about, you know, upon awakening, we do these things. And I really have ingrained that. And that was one thing that really made sense to me. And then the further I've gone in business, I was like, Oh, I thought it was just you to get sober. You had to do these things. I'm like, Oh, it's like a successful human being thing. That's weird <laughs> like to have like a morning ritual to kind of connect. And, um, so I still do that, you know, and it weans and waves, uh, you know, I do a little short reading uh, journal, play some music and, and my morning routine is kind of ebbed and flowed, but I've always kept one in there. And uh, so I connect spiritually in the morning. I make my bed. Uh, I try to be of service to other people. And, um, and, and I'm pretty act like a lot of my friends, like some of my best friends are all in recovery and I didn't plan it that way. In fact, I fucking, when I went to these like softball, sober softball and meetings yeah. after the meetings, yeah. I was like, these losers, I don't, I'm going to find normal friends. Mm-hmm. And then over the years I was like, oh, I am one of those losers because these are my friends that I, you know, because we have this common bond that pulls us together. And, and so, um, you know, most of my friends are in recovery. It's just kind of, not all of them, but, but a good portion of them. And um, so I'm always connecting with other alcoholics. I pray morning and night. I do a morning routine. I, um, I make my bed and, uh, I work with other alcoholics like it's, and it does the fucking crazy part is when I add up the amount of time I have to spend, like working on my recovery a day, it's so minuscule to have the life I have today. And it's just consistently doing it day after day. Like what I have to do today just to have the life I have blows me away. And it's just become part of my reality. It's no, no longer anything I have to try to do. It's just what I do day in and day out. But like the vast majority of my day, I'm, I'm working, I'm doing shit, I'm living life, I'm being a dad, I'm having all these things. There's just these small bookends I have to do morning and night and just never forget who the fuck I am. Like I am an alcoholic and I don't ever want to get to the place of my sobriety because I see this happen to so many people where they forget who they are. Like maybe it wasn't that bad. You know, and so that's why I'm so active in meetings. It's A, to show up for the guy who just walked in the door like other people were there for me. But B, like I would be lying if I said this, not selfishly for me too, because it reminds me when I hear people share and I'm like, that's me. Like, I don't ever want to forget what 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 I suffer from and, and who I am at my core, because that's when people with long-term sobriety, they just gradually fade out of meetings, they gradually fade out of recovery. And it's very cunning usually, it just kind of slowly creeps in. Yeah, and I don't yeah. ever want that to be me. And I, I have a, I have a healthy fear of that enough so that it keeps me in the game of recovery. Hmm. Man, I love that. And that sounds like a really solid plan. I like how you described, uh, you know, your plan or, or a big part of what you do at the beginning and end of the day is bookends. And I know I've seen on your Instagram, uh, you, you made a, a real or a really short video on like building a morning routine. And uh, I know that in large part for me, I would say that's one of the kind of like you with making the bed. One of the things that I've done damn near perfectly, and it's just made a huge difference. And like you said, it's not just like a sobriety thing. It's like a, hey, your your day is probably going to be more successful, maybe a little, you know, a little more stress free, a little happier. Um, it's just something that like successful people uh, tend to do overall. So I think that's really good. And that sounds like a, like a pretty solid plan to me. So before we wrap up, Brad, I want to ask if there's maybe one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the sober nation on getting sober or what? Yeah. For people that are, that are new to recovery, maybe someone that's just been struggling kind of like you did coming in and out for a while. Hmm. Yeah. One piece, man. I mean, you know, it's, uh, like first off there 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 is hope because you know they didn't seem like a hope for a guy like me to you know have the, have the life i have today still blows me away some days but um like if you're just ruthlessly consistent with the shit that's being told to you by a sponsor by a recovery coach by by a friend in recovery that has worked for them because chances are it's going to work for you in some way shape or form but i t- tell people, I remember, I said, I'm going to give this a year. 
And if in a year I want to go back to my misery, I'm going to go back to it. But I'm going to give this actually a year and just see. And man, I was blown away before I was halfway through, like what was happening to me. The whole one day at a time is, is this kind of cheesy saying that's thrown around. But if you can fully comprehend what that fucking means, like to literally just take it one day at a time and one day at a time, do the small, simple shit that's being told to you. Like you just need to be 51% more willing than you're not. And like, you can build off of that. So, I, I mean, the one day at a time, the more, the longer I went on sobriety, I was like, there's like this cheesy saying that's thrown around, but it's so true. If you can fully comprehend, just take this one day at a time. And I was thinking one day at a time, but I did tell myself, I'm going to give it a year. And if in a year I want to go back out, I can always go back to the dope. And I had some bad cravings in there, but man, I was like, okay, hey, just make it through the day and tomorrow might be better and fucking go figure the next day was better. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, man. I, I know what you mean. We do. There, there are so many of these things like one day at a time that, you know, that we hear really frequently, but that's, man, that's such a good point. If I can just make today work, uh, then yeah, man, tomorrow is likely to better be better. The next week is likely to be better month, year, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and I really like that, you know, just give it a year. Um, and, and that seems like a long time sometimes, but, uh, but again, the, the focusing on today, um, can get you there. Um, I, I'd agree with that. So that's really solid advice. So you can connect with Brad on Instagram at the sober bodybuilder, and you can learn more about key nutrition at keynutrition.com. Thanks again for coming on the show, Brad. Thanks, man. Good to chat with you always. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.